Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's that time of the month again. My name is Mike McGinnis. Here, as always, uh, with me is my intrepid co-host, Ken Gagney. Say hello, Ken. Hello, Ken. How are you this month? Uh, I'm fine. How are you this year? I'm doing well. It's That's right. It's it's a new year, isn't it? Happy 2012 to you, sir. And to you. I hope the year is going well for you so far. Uh, it's been a rough year. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Nowhere to go but up from here, though. That's right. Can't wait for 2013. <laughs> if the Mayans will let us have that year. <laughs> yeah. You know, every year at the stroke of midnight, I'm always with a bunch of friends having a great time. And five minutes into the new year, I think, wow, this year is great so far. If only it could stay this way. But invariably, the clock continues, and the other 365 days just kind of drag me down. So does it just start going hill at like 6 after midnight? Yeah, after that, just it's it's a goner. Mm, sorry to hear that. <laughs> have you turned on your Apple II yet this year? Yes, I have. Wow. Apple II is still running in the year 2012. Who'd have thunk? I would. Isn't there a limitation to the inbuilt clocks in the Apple II where they only run to the year 2040 or something like that? Uh, I don't know. As far as I know, the, the Apple IIs don't actually have inbuilt clocks. You had to buy clock chips or cards for that functionality. Maybe I'm thinking of the 2GS then. Uh, maybe. I'm not aware of that. I figure by 2040, I'm probably not going to be thinking too much about the 2GS. A traitor. <laughs> well, I'll probably be dead by then. <laughs> oh, so you won't be thinking about much of anything. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I hope you're still around. It's not that far away. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I hope you're not around me. I just hope you're around. <laughs> I see how you are. <laughs> so it's been a busy week for Open Apple. Actually, it's just been a busy weekend. Uh, today is January 2nd, and on December 31st, we released the first ever end-of-year roundtable. We invited some Apple II celebrities to chat with us, and hopefully you've heard it by now. But there were six of us all talking about what the year 2011 meant to the Apple II community and what we hope to see and hear in 2012. It was a, a great time. A lot of people who hadn't been on this show before, and it was great to, to chat with them. Yeah, I think it went really well. Um, I had a good time recording it and even listening to it again later. The same day that we released that podcast was also the last day that you could take our inaugural listener survey. We closed that at the stroke of midnight and on January 1st compiled the results. And we are still contemplating what they may mean and what changes, if any, we need to make to our recording process, to our content, format, structure, frequency, etc. But in the meantime, while we look at those, we want to share some preliminary results with you. Uh, most people uh, love the frequency of our show. Open Apple should continue at once a month, says 85% of the listeners who took the survey. 12% think we should publish more often. 3% think we should publish less often. Well, that was something I'd, I had always wondered as we did this was how long, or, you know, how, how many times a month we should actually be doing this and whether we should be doing it twice a month or once a week. And it sounds like we've actually got, got the right number. Right. The Retro Computing Roundtable does once every three weeks. The Retro MacCast goes once a week. So there are all different schedules out there. Part of this tied into the length of our episodes. If we did it more often, we might have less content per show, and we weren't sure if that would be a good or a bad thing. But 46% of the survey takers think that we should try to keep the show to under an hour, which we've historically been terrible at. However, the other percentage of listeners, which would be 54, think that we should be more than an hour, whether that's 60 to 90 minutes or more than 90 minutes. There's some variability there, but 
definitely at least an hour is what the majority want. I think I'm with the, the first group of respondents there, actually, and trying to keep it under an hour because it's an hour and a half podcast. What you hear when you download the podcast or iTunes or whatever, it, it may be an hour of listening time. It's three hours of recording time for us. We have to go and, and edit and get it ready, and it's it's a lot of work, and, and so I, I think an hour is actually probably a good target to shoot for. Now, I'm not saying it should be a, a hard deadline where we cut people off after an hour, but... Yeah, it's always tricky. When you get going on a good conversation, you don't want to just end it so that you can stick to a schedule. Right. You know, you want the show to be a bit more organic than that. As far as topics that we cover on the show, 51% found the technical level of the content to be slightly too easy or accommodating. 46% found it to be just right. Nobody found it to be too hard, which was good. I'm not really sure what it would mean for us to ramp up the technicality, though. How do we make the show techier? Well, that might tie into the guests that we bring on the show because... Well, yeah, I think that's that's kind of what it has to be is we would need to rely more on, on guests that we bring in uh, and, and their level of technical knowledge. Right, because you and I may be discussing things at the level that we're comfortable with and maybe most of our listeners know more than we do. That's probably a good bet. <laughs> so topics that they want to see covered on the show, uh, in order, the top three are history, programming, and hardware development. And we're definitely going to be addressing those. We'll be discussing History of the Wazoo later in this very episode, and we have plans to bring on some more hardware focus very shortly. Well, that'll be good, yeah, because I, I, a, a lot of this past year has either been history or um, uh, software types. Not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, but it's I'm looking forward to getting some of the hardware people on. Right, as well as perhaps some more international perspectives. Sure, absolutely. It'd be nice to get maybe one of our French friends or the uh, the Australians, or, and I think we have some people in Italy as well. But definitely not Canada. <laughs> well, no, of course not. <laughs> That's not international. <laughs> uh, as for online presences and social media, we asked people where they want to look for us online. And most people do get our episodes via RSS or by going right to the Open Apple website, or they hear about it on a2central.com. We asked people if they want to see us on Twitter, and 58% said that they would not follow us on Twitter. Uh, 74% said that they wouldn't follow us on Facebook. Uh, the social media site on which most people would say that they would follow us uh, was actually Google+. 41% said that they would follow us on Google+. A few people aren't on Google+, yet, but right now that social media service seems to still have a very high concentration of tech heads. So it's not surprising that you would find a podcast on there. Yeah, that, those results don't really surprise me at all. So, Mike, you and I will be talking about if we want to open up presences on these sites and what that would look like. Okay. Two brief qualitative comments I want to share. Uh, one person said that the Open Apple podcast has the best show notes of any podcast out there. And thank you. We really appreciate that. The show notes actually do take a while to compile because we have to listen to the entire show. And anytime a resource is referenced... We either need to pull the URL out of our own internal notes, or if we didn't prepare that ahead of time, go find it, and then list it all chronologically, and also decide whether or not something is worth referencing and linking to. I find that as a very valuable service because we've had people who are new to the show who didn't know that our notes were so extensive listen to it and furiously be jotting down things that they needed to look up later because they heard about it on our show and found it really interesting. And then they went to the show notes, they're like, oh, it's all already there. So we hope people are aware of that resource, and those who are, we're very appreciative to hear that you appreciate it. Yay for us. 
And also, unfortunately, one person had a problem with our survey. He said that he was unable to submit his email address for the drawing. Didn't we have a comment section where you could put something like that in there? I mean, how did he leave that comment? Right. He let us know that he couldn't give us his email address, but he could have taken that opportunity to give us his email address. Well, we apologize anyway. Yeah. So if you do want to drop us a line, you can always email us at podcast at open-apple.net. And uh, as for the drawing, we will be doing that next month, so please stay tuned, and we'll have a prize of questionable fabulousness for one of our survey takers. No, it will be fabulous. That's right. One other thing that was noted, both in the show notes for last month and in the survey results, was the audio quality of our December episode. And we tried to have a preemptive apology in there, but some people might have missed it. The quality was questionable. Uh, Mike, your track was great, but both our guest Rob and I had some technical difficulties. And we do have various contingencies in place in case something like this happens. But those contingencies are to ensure that the show can go on, regardless of the quality, and that's what we needed to rely on. So the alternative was either to release the episode with the questionable quality of my track and Rob's track, or to unfortunately not release the episode at all, we decided to go with the former. And we think that was the right decision, but we apologize that we had to rely on the patience of our listeners to barrel through that episode. Uh, we hope it wasn't too difficult to listen to, and it was the exception, not the rule. Well, I think that's just the nature of podcasting and, and technology in general is sometimes that's just going to happen. Right. At least we know to expect that, and we do have those contingencies in place to ensure the show must go on. Well, and I think the the uh, roundtable that we did last week really kind of made up for that. That sounded great, in my opinion. Yeah, there are so many variables. The more people you have on the show, the more chances there are for failure. And when editing that show, we actually had eight different audio tracks that we were working with. And I think that given that, everybody came out sounding quite legible. Yep. So I think in the future we'll strive for that rather than show number 10. Definitely. This is Jason Scott of TextFiles.com. Be sure to flip the Open Apple podcast when you get to the other side. Well, it's a new year. It's the perfect time for a hostile takeover. This episode of the Open Apple podcast, we're pleased to introduce our guest of the month, Retro Computing Roundtable's co-host, David Grealish. Hi, David. Hey, Ken. A day I never thought I'd live to see. <laughs> hey, David, how are you? Hi. Uh, I'm very happy to be here as your new host. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't get your hopes up. Happy New Year to you, sir. Happy New Year. So do we actually need to introduce you, or should we just tell everybody to go buy your book? <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> a plug is always the best thing. Well, it's not like we're going to let him plug RCR. That other show, right? That other podcast. Not to be named. <laughs> podcast not to be named. David, you have many roles. You have a long and storied history in the retrocomputing community. Can you give us a, a brief synopsis, or is that an oxymoron? <laughs> no, I can give you a brief synopsis. I got interested in... In computer history around um, 19, late 80s, 1990 or so. Read the book Hackers from Stephen Levy. Excellent. Then I had a weird idea about, uh, why don't I, maybe I might like to start collecting computers. Nobody does that. I like to be original. So, uh, so I started doing that. And then I thought, hey, maybe I'll make a club. And this is pre-internet. So I, well, I had America Online and CompuServe. So I did a newsletter called Historically Brewed. And I did that for a number of years. Then um, had kids and life got complicated and stuff. And that fell apart. Anyway, so fast forward to more recently, I, I got back involved, started a couple of podcasts, one being the Retro Computing Roundtable, Carrington Vanston and Earl Evans, both of uh, podcasting fame. And then recently I took my nine newsletters I did, zines, and put them together into one compilation book with my story at the beginning. So yes, yeah, so I published that recently and it's for sale. So buy a copy. 
And that newsletter, that was the publication of an organization you were the president of, that pre-internet club you found? Right, the Historical Computer Society. And that was based in what area? Well, uh, in El Paso, Texas, originally. I was in the Army still, so when I, I conceived it, I was in Germany. And then, uh, so we, we moved to the States, uh, to Fort Bliss, it was the Army station there. And then ultimately, I went back to my hometown, Jacksonville, Florida, and I've moved around a few times since then. And does that organization still exist? No, and um, I had some some great goals with it. So it's, in a nutshell, what, what I hoped to have happened was the organization to turn into a full nonprofit you know, organization and build a museum. And then the, the its voice, which was the, the newsletter or the zine as it evolved, become more magazine quality like, would become a for-profit vehicle for... Yeah, I was young. I didn't know what I was doing completely. <laughs> but maybe it would turn into a magazine and I could make a living, you know, printing the magazine mm-hmm. and promoting the, the, the nonprofit and it has a museum and so on. So that all ultimately kind of fell apart. I had to, you know, still do real work for a living. But at its height, um, Historically Brewed had almost 500 subscribers worldwide and it was sold at the Computer History Museum in Boston and um, one of the Smithsonian stores. So I was pretty proud of that. Have you ever considered reviving it and making new issues? Yes, I considered it. <laughs> so, you know, along with the book, I actually finally printed the first issue of Classic Computing. So the quick story there was the, the name of the newsletter came from a play on the word home, you know, the homebrew computer club that people would homebrew their computers before you could buy off the shelf computers. So the name of the newsletter historically brewed was a play on that. But people didn't really get it other than after yeah, outside people didn't understand what that was. So I thought I need to come up with a better name that people would get what the magazine was about right off the bat, classic computing. And um, so at the end, this is my story in the book. So kind of near the end there, I came up with a real nice color concept covers and I went and had them printed. I had 500 of them printed. And um, I believe if I remember correctly, they cost me like $500 at the print shop, <laughs> which, which busted me. And then essentially <laughs> that issue just fell apart, never happened history. So that would have been history. I'm um, sorry, classic computing issue one, or essentially historically brewed issue 10. So I had those covers for years and years and years and years. And so with the release of the book, I finally put that one issue together. So I, I'm also selling those. And then the Kickstarter project I did, you could, if you supported it at a slightly higher level, you would get that as well. Now I have a quick question about your Kickstarter campaign. The, it was obviously very successful, got you what you needed to do this project. I read in an interview that even once you got your campaign started to raise these funds, you were still spending two or three hours a day to maintain it. What sort of work does a Kickstarter campaign require on that ongoing basis? I guess one of the, um, and you know, that's a great interview, by the way, too, because you had emailed me about it and I'd sort of forgotten, but the guy who did a the Kickstarter guide to Kickstarter, that's the interview about it. Um, Nelson DeWitt. I, one of the big misconceptions I think he points out and, you know, and a lot of people have, and I I don't believe I really had this misconception is that Kickstarter sort of is a platform or a web destination is that, you know, you do all the work and, and once you launch it and it's going, Oh, now, you know, great. You're done. Now you can sit back and relax and hope for the best, you know, watch it grow. But that's not really how it works. Uh, even um, once you get that far, there's not too many people that are just going to discover it by themselves just by, you know, some people will, but looking around Kickstarter, there's lots of projects going on there. So it's really up to you to market it and get the word out. So to answer your question, yeah, I spent, I wouldn't say two or three hours every single day, but I spent, it, it takes a lot of time. I know me and Nelson discussed this to promote what's going on there. So I tweeted about it regularly. 
I emailed pretty much everybody I knew that was involved in computer history, you know, other podcasters and so on. Um, Jason Scott helped me out a lot because he's, he's got a big following. So when he tweeted about it, that helped. So yeah, you just have to constantly sort of uh, keep putting it out there, you know, consider supporting the book and buy the book. And so, yeah, it takes, it takes more work. And then once it was a success, boy, it took a lot of work afterwards. <laughs> too. Oh, sure. Shipping out all those rewards. Oh, yeah. Like. Putting the thing together. You're right. So those two to three hours a day, weren't you just counting all the money that was coming in, like Scrooge McDuck or anything? <laughs> no. But then <laughs> as people um, supported it and made a um, pledge, you know, I would email out to them and thank them. And um, I made a little certificate. I want to make it kind of special. So I, I personalize that with their name and send that out to them. And, um, you know, people are emailing you and asking questions and, you know, so, and then you've got to do updates at the Kickstarter site, but it was a very rewarding process. It was really great. Nice. So here's a question for you. This is an Apple II podcast. Are you an Apple II person? Um, you know what? The, the simple and the, the most honest direct answer would be say, would instead say, I'm a, you know, I'm a Macintosh person, but I mean, I'm a computer historian. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we have this guy on? Here? Yeah, I uh, I think we were going for one of his other co-hosts, and they were busy. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. Go Would on, it help David. if I say the first uh, personal computer I ever uh, learned on was an Apple II Plus? Okay, you're buying yourself some street cred there. <laughs> yeah, I learned programming on Apple II Plus in uh, college in 1982. But I I owned I see I own an Apple II Plus, an Apple IIe, an Apple IIc, an Apple IIgs, an Apple One replica. Um, all kinds of peripherals, documentation, magazines. So does that make me an Apple II guy? I just don't have I don't have real history in the Apple II. I never owned one originally, just like I never owned an Altair or many of the other computers that I own now. So I wasn't I'm not a first generation Apple II user. But I like the Apple II. So but my history came out of the first the Commodore sixty four for a little while, then the Macintosh. So it really got me excited about computing. So nowadays you're sort of platform agnostic. As a computer historian, mostly. But you know what, to be honest, especially like interviewing John Scully and uh, and so on, is I'm kind of um, going back to, you know, the, I'll, I'll say Apple roots more. Like like I've been worried about it. I don't want to be too Apple-ish, you know, and turn people off or whatever. But what the heck? I'm going to, if I want to talk a little bit more about the one, what I like the most, why not? Mm -hmm. And speaking of interviews... On the Retro Computing Roundtable, you have Carrington Vance and Earl Evans as your co-host. And I've been wanting to ask you, how does it feel to have single-handedly killed off one megahertz and retro bits? <laughs> Nicely done, sir. Now, is that fair? <laughs> did, well, maybe did I really kill them off? I don't know. I mean, all three of you are such talented podcasters, and I love all of your shows. And I'm glad RCR has a regular publication schedule, and I wish that... Uh, Earl and Carrington shows were coming out as often as well. I have a good explanation and, and all, uh, truthful you know, seriousness about it is um, I, I tried podcasting a number of times before the Retro Computing Roundtable, and um, I'm not very good at it by myself. Maybe now that I have more experience, maybe going forward I might be. I haven't had much time to, to try it. But um, I started off and I've discovered podcasting. I didn't get excited about it until I discovered RetroBits. Earl Evans podcast. So I'm Earl's big fan. Mm -hmm. Listened to I've listened to every one of his podcasts at least three times through. Gone back to them. Wow. And then and then I discovered Carrington's, you know, and again, so I'm not a big Apple II person per se, but um but I'm a computer history person and loved his podcast. So, Carrington's personality, his humor, and, and the whole and I've told him this, you know, on our podcast, this this whole 
audible way of handling opening stuff and describing it and everything. Just love it. It's just great. And um, so I'm their fans. So I did the Retro Computer Roundtable and I had a stumbling part there for a while. I, I guess I was overcome with editing and managing it and stuff. Um, now I don't have those problems. But I decided I think it'd just go smoother and be better if I had two regular co-hosts versus trying to rotate people in. And, uh, you know, Carrington and, and Earl are podcasters that stood out to me. One of the ways I so- sold them on it was um, not at all to try to kill off their own podcast, but here was a vehicle so that you two and me will sort of be accountable to regularly produce a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worked out that way every three weeks for the most part. No, I definitely agree that working with somebody who can spot you and keep you regular is definitely the way to go. Yeah, so you guys can appreciate that. And I think they both were great by themselves, you know, but they're, I think we're good as a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have a good future together. But you still occasionally do have guests on, as you did with Blake. Yeah, and, and we'll do more of that. And um, and I you now I've got some things behind me, like the book and, and this interview, which built up recently. Mm-hmm. But I hope to do more of my own um, podcasting, like I do with the Stan Veet book. And and um, people are eager for that. And, and I... Uh, I want to do it. It's just such a great book as well as the classic computing video one. Get back to, uh, I, I gotta say, I'm, I'm a real big fan of the Stan V podcast. That's a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. It, it's still one of my favorite books. And you know, the next chapter five, which I'm going to start doing is the Apple chapter, which is especially timely, you know, um, about when, uh, Steve jobs and Steve Wozniak, they shared Stan's uh, booth at one of the first computer shows in New Jersey. So they were showing the uh, uh, Apple II for the first time. I was it, uh, again, it's from memory. So is that right? But I think so. For the first time, they're showing the Apple II, maybe. Yeah, that was introduced at the West Coast Computer Fair. So it must have been right after that, then. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, did Are you guys, have you ever heard the story from his book where uh, Stan's uh, mother in law insisted that she repaired Steve Jobs' torn jeans? <laughs> No, I hadn't heard that. So that, that'll be in that chapter. Great. We'll, we'll look for it. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. As David was just talking about, his historically brewed uh, book shipped recently, and I received mine in the mail just before Christmas. And I got to say, it made a nice Christmas present. Uh, I had two or three of these magazines. I was not a regular subscriber. I think I picked them up from somebody on the classic computing list uh, a while back, and I always kind of wondered about the other ones. I would, you know, look on eBay and, and things like that, and I never saw it. So it's it's really great to have the entire collection now in in one book like that. So thank you, David, for making that oh, available. No problem. Thank you. It's really fulfilling that you have it. How many do you have left for sale? Uh the last count, I believe, thirty. Okay. But I'm already preparing to do, you know, the what what I'll be doing going forward is is printing a hundred at a time, mm-hmm. which keeps it, you know, economical. Mm-hmm. I found a really great printer. You know, the, I think the quality's really good. So, were you putting these in everybody's stockings this past holiday season? No, <laughs> <laughs> I would. They, they cost real money. <laughs> the, the, I can't afford that just yet. But okay, <laughs> I did send my mother and father one. Okay, and, I guess that's fair. <laughs> yeah. And I noticed that this book can even be ordered technically from Amazon, right? No, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It's a it's a real book because <laughs> <laughs> it has an ISBN and a uh, UPC barcode on it, which uh that costs 150 bucks just to do that. So so if I had that ISBN, could I go to Barnes and Noble and order it? Not yet, but I'm working on that. Um Barnes and Noble, I have to actually send them a physical book for them to consider it. 
So I'm, I have the application here and I just got to do it. Cool. Well, good luck with that. Thanks. Do you think it'll be hard? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I hope that they consider it and deem it worthy. Yeah, me too. That'd be really cool since that's the primary other than I mostly buy from Amazon, but you know, in the physical world here, I, I go to Barnes and Noble quite often to their stores. Yeah. You can probably skip the application process for borders. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. Up next, the midday and Indian newspaper recently featured an interview with uh, Steve Wozniak. Um, they of course refer to him as the other Steve, but uh, we just like to call him Woz. Um, and he goes through the basic stuff that he talks about in pretty much every, every interview. Um, but he did mention, uh, they, they asked him of course about the Apple three and, and what went wrong there. And he, he makes an interesting comment that yes, the Apple three was a failure. The Lisa was a failure and the Mac was a failure, which is sort of an interesting tact to take. And, and uh, I'm sure we'll discuss this further on in the, the show today, but uh, it, it's actually true that the Mac didn't sell well for a very long time, and, and the Apple II kept it afloat financially. The, the sales of the Apple II, development had mostly stopped on the Apple II, and yet the sales continued to go strong. That's how they were able to take these huge losses on the Mac for, for as many years as they did. Yeah, and as far as the Macintosh being a, a failure, that, that was... Um... I mean, obviously it wasn't a failure in the long run, but it, certainly during its first year, year and a half, two years, it, it was not doing so great. You know, they had built a brand new state-of-the-art, you know, robotic Macintosh factory, and it was only doing like 40% of capacity in, in production. You know, it really wasn't until its killer app showed up, you know, married with a couple other technologies that it, it started um, doing well. One of the first things is it needed more RAM, so with the 512... But then ultimately the Mac Plus with SCSI, you know, connection, fast uh, serial connection, or is it parallel? I don't know what SCSI is, but I think it's parallel. But um, yeah, the laser writer and PostScript and desktop publishing is what saved the Macintosh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. That and well, and when you look at the Mac, it, those initial models, it had a very small screen. It was black and white. Yeah. It, it came with 128K, which even most Apple II users at the time had more memory than that. Yeah, it is good to see Steve Wozniak kind of being somewhat some fresh questions being asked to him. He must be a hard person to interview, you know, yep. to kind of bring up some fresh perspective. Right. I mean, what what is there left to talk about after all this time? I mean, everybody wants to know what he did 30 years ago. They're not always asking about Fusion I.O. or Dancing with the Stars or Segway. Right. But he, he at least seems to be willing and happy to talk about the stuff. I know that there are certain people out there that after a while they get tired of talking about things and they just won't anymore. So it's nice that he's still willing to engage. Up next, we have the Retro Challenge. Uh, Ken, you added this one to the news. you want to take us there? Sure. The Retro Challenge is a twice-a-year hacking competition on retro computers. It's kind of like HackFest, which is held at Kansas Fest, except instead of one week, it offers contestants one month to create a retro computing creation and instead of using just the apple II, they can use any hardware that fulfills the specifications listed in the contest regulations and instead of having to be at rockhurst university in kansas city you can be anywhere in the world so it's a pretty cool competition it has a obviously a wider audience than hackfest and has quite a few entries this year they have 21 people signed up for the so-called Retro Challenge Winter Warm-Up. The quote-unquote real Retro Challenge occurs in the summer, I think in July. This year, of the 21 that they have this winter, I see six or seven that are Apple II specific. There are brief descriptions of the entries that are currently being worked on, and they include such descriptions as, I plan to make some music with one or more Apple II computers. 
Another person wants to create a BBS package for the Apple II. Uh, one person wants to do something with the Apple One. He's not more specific than that. A, an Apple IIe 9600 BPS cassette interface downloader um, and Apple Pascal on the Apple IIe. These are some of the items out there. So these entries will be submitted by the end of the calendar month, January, and there are some fantastic prizes that they can choose from, including a subscription to JuiceGS, coincidentally. Now, Ken, are, are you going to participate in either the winter warm-up or the actual retro challenge? I am not. The organizer actually asked me if I would be, and I'd love to, except by putting out one issue of JuiceGS every quarter, one episode of Open Apple every month, and two blog posts on Apple 2Bits every week, I just really don't have the bandwidth for any additional challenges. Well, just quit your job. <laughs> then you'll have plenty of time. But then what will I use for an Open Apple recording studio? Oh, yeah, there is that. Yeah. What about you, David? Is this something that, that interests you at all? It does interest me, but the few times I've thought about entering, and even a couple of times I actually uh, typed in, I guess, an entry, I failed. Oh, no. <laughs> I did. I didn't come through or do anything. I think I have too much. Yeah, I have too much else going on, unfortunately. Um, but one day, but you know, for that matter, I wouldn't mind having my own retro challenge just with my own stuff here in my own house. <laughs> but half the time, it sits in the garage. So that's that's a challenge I need to look at. I wonder if the retro challenge organizers would accept a submission of I'm going to do a retro computing podcast. Oh well. Anyway, yeah, that's that. <laughs> Moving right along. Um, now, this next item, I, I don't remember how I stumbled across this, but ZDNet has a photo blog, I guess, of Larry's Museum of Dead Technology. Uh, Larry Marcus is a, a partner at Walden Venture Capital, and he's a tech investor. I guess is neither here nor there, but he, the interesting thing is, is that he has an office full of retro computers, retro technology, and... They take you through a series of photos here. There's 16 of them. And it looks like he's got everything from the original brick-style Motorola cell phone to a Lisa 1. Looks like there's an original Apple II, and there's a whole bunch of neat stuff there. Um, what caught, what kind of caught my eye was at the end, they, they have a, a, a QCAT, which I'm not sure why that would be considered to be on the same level as any of the rest of this, but um, okay. And what is the QCAT again? It was sort of this little hand scanner thing, and you could scan in a barcode in, say, a magazine or, or on a product, and, and you would automatically get emails from the company who was marketing the product that you were looking at, um, and you could get deals and that sort of thing. And I think the QCAT achieved some notoriety because of the uh, amount of spying uh, that that the company that made the QCAT was doing on your activities when you use this thing. It was it was more than just the products that you were scanning. I, I remember that. And as a result, it, it didn't really sell very well. It was sort of excoriated in the market, and they went out of business. And since then, there's been kind of a small uh, hacker community that, that's, that's built up around the QCAT to, to do other things with it. So would you say that QCAT codes were precursors to modern-day QR codes? I would say so, yeah. It may have been a technology that was before its time, uh, made by a company that didn't really understand what to do with it. Yeah, I see some other cool stuff in his collection, like a Nintendo Virtual Boy, a 32-bit portable video game system, as well as a Walkman, which really isn't all that rare, I think. Uh, well, if it's on eBay, it's rare, rare, rare. <laughs> True. Actually, I recently saw a video of someone who said, here's how to run iTunes on your Apple II, and it Instead of synchronizing with your MP3 player, it synchronizes with your Walkman. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was meant to be humorous, I think, but he actually 
seems to have done some coding that allows you to play sound on your Apple II and record it to your Walkman, which by itself isn't a hardware feat, but it's just a really clever video the way he cut it. Sure. And what's, what's interesting for me about this this whole the, his office setup here is is kind of straying away from Apple a little bit here. Is he's got a lot of really nice, hard to find stuff in there. I mean, there's an Altair 8800 that's he's got two floppy drives and uh, looks like a CRT terminal and a bunch of uh, stuff that's really would be really hard to find today. Uh, there's a Commodore Pet. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in here, and it's not just Apple. So, David, what kind of a setup do you have in your home office to keep all your artifacts? Without giving you a, a long story, uh, you know, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, and um, so some things changed our lives, um, like layoff, a couple of years ago. So I now live in the uh, greater Atlanta area or lesser Atlanta area, as Carrington likes to joke around. <laughs> so we, we've been renting, and we just recently moved again, like in September. So I don't have anything set up, unfortunately, other than the basic office setup. So all my stuff is in the uh, garage. But um, yeah, I love what this guy's done, and this is exactly what I hope to do. Did you see the uh, that Altair setup he has? Yeah, that's quite a setup because it looks like he's got a he's got an original eighty eight hundred, maybe is that two of them? But he's got a disk drive terminal with it, two disk drives, and a, a CRT interface, and a couple of yeah. other things. Commodore Pet. Yep. So pretty impressive. I'd like to do something more like that at my my job. Occasionally, I, I break out some stuff as far as I'll, I'll uh, take it there and set up something and mess with it, you know, in between working. And a few things I bought recently, I have them shipped there. So then I take them out of the box and <laughs> keep them there a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> set up. Ken, you have a 2GS at work, don't you? Why, yes, I do. Oh, I've heard you talk about it. Yeah, it's an Apple 2GS that I pulled out of my parents' basement the winter of 2008. And it had been sitting there for 11 years. Prior to that, it ran a dial-up bulletin board for four years and got about 22,000 calls in that time. But I dusted it off, hooked up ADT Pro, eventually installed an Ethernet card, and now I'm able to transfer disk images back and forth. I still have a couple of hard drives I haven't imaged, and I frankly have no idea what's on them. And I'm really curious to find that out. But yeah, every now and then I'll use it to, again, make disk images or just spend a lunch break playing Oregon Trail or Loadrunner. The IT help desk doesn't seem to have any problem with the fact that I have it on the company network. So this really uh, pushes the limit on BYOT, bring your own technology. Nice. If I was your IT support, I'd make you get rid of that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Total security breach. That's right. We don't support that. I'm just kidding. I haven't had to submit any help desk tickets yet, though. Ken, Ken, you said you'd run a BBS on that? Why, yes, I did. Are you going to, now that you have an Uther card, are you planning to bring it back online and maybe run it through a serial port? Well, let's see. The BBS software I used, Warp 6, was designed to be a dial-up bulletin board. I have no idea if that's adaptable to be run over Ethernet. I suppose I could, on the off hours maybe, hook it up to my direct line here at work and have people dial in, but I don't even know where my modem is anymore. Hmm. Um, No, I don't think I have any plans to run a dial-up BBS again. There are so many more modern and different ways to connect with the community nowadays that I don't think running a dial-up BBS, at least in my case, would be worth the effort. That makes sense. Sorry. You'll just have to call into the podcast instead. Oh, man. (laughs) Previously on this podcast, we talked about how Richard Garriott threw down the gauntlet and said that no true Ultima could be made without him and his team, since he and Origin Systems were the creative geniuses that invented this legendary RPG series. There was recently a news item saying that uh, Richard Garriott is working on a new RPG 
and he is actually in talks with Electronic Arts to see if this project of his could become known as Ultima Online 2, which is very exciting. This would reunite Garriott with the brand that he created for the first time in quite a while. Have either of you ever played Ultima Online? I haven't, no, but what happened to it? Just fell out of favor there? Good question. Uh, isn't it still online? I thought it was. Ultima Online came out in, I think, 97, and was popular for until, what, 2003 when World of Warcraft came out, and everybody sort of switched over there, but I don't remember reading anything about about it going away. I could be wrong, but... I played Ultima Online briefly back when it first came out. They had the the giveaway where, you know, you, you could pick up the disc for free at CompUSA or something like that and get 30 days of free online play. But I, I didn't actually subscribe at the end of that. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, it is still up. It has released in the last 14 years eight expansion packs, a booster pack, and dozens of other free content updates. And you can go to uo.com, which is the official website of Ultima Online. And you can click yeah. on community management, or rather account management, so you can still log in. Yeah, it's it's alive and well. But just like how EverQuest was still alive when they came out with EverQuest 2, I guess they figure it's just time to start afresh, because there's probably only so much you can do with a game that's been running for 14 years. Well, I'm looking through this article here, and even, even Garriott says this is a successor, not a sequel. He wants to move on from, from what's been done so far. Yeah, and he says that even if it's not called Ultima, he will release it as the spiritual successor to Ultima Online. Right. Well, it would be good to have him back. Have either of you been much of the multi, you know, the mega multi or whatever online <laughs> players? You can tell I'm, I'm not. I, I tend not to be a, um, a player of, of MMORPGs or first-person shooters online or anything like that. No, I've never played a Memorpica. The closest I ever came was once on my Sega Dreamcast. I logged on with Fantasy Star Online and went on a quest, and that was it. Are, are you a gamer in general, David? No, I, ne- I never really have been, though. Um... Have you no soul? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, I mean, we own an Xbox and we own a Wii, and um, I have two teenage kids and, and, and an eight-year-old son, and they play. Um but I did play some. Um, I kind of got excited about gaming for the first time when someone showed me um, Half-Life back in the late 90s. And so I uh, even spent a little money upgrading a P- old PC I had to play that. And then when we got the Xbox, I played um, Halo 2 and Half-Life 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, but no, otherwise. Well, now on my Mac, too, I've played um, Oni. I really enjoyed that one. Mm-hmm. But again, that's a long time ago. Well, I know your RCR co-host, Carrington, there, he's always talking about different games, like not only retro-themed games on the iPad, but also more modern games like Portal 2. Certainly, he's talked you into trying some of these. Actually, I do have Portal, not Portal 2, but I have, um, through Steam, I have um, Portal. And I also have the episode, I guess, episode one of Half-Life 2. So I have played those some, but I'm not, no, I'm not a big gamer, modern gamer. More of a Pac-Man guy, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or I was, anyway. Oh, I don't, I don't mean to knock it. This weekend, Andy Malloy and I will be making our annual sojourn to Fun Spot and the American Classic Arcade Museum up in Laconia, New Hampshire. Over 250 machines from the 80s, and they're all still just a quarter. Wow. That would be great. Because that was a good time. Uh, you know, I was of the right age during the late 90, 90s. Listen to me, the late 70s. <laughs> you wish. <laughs> nice You're try. you with me again. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, I graduated high school in 82, so you know, I was right in there when the, the rise of the video game arcade into the early 80s. So um, that was an enjoyable time. 
I spent a lot of, a lot of quarters. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. Some of them just wouldn't stop taking your money, like Gauntlet. Oh, those games were impossible. <laughs> it's more like Tempest for me. That was a good one. I never mastered it, although it is featured prominently in the novel Ready Player One, which we've talked about oh. on both this show and your show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I highly recommend picking it up. Definitely the best book I read in 2011. I guess it was inevitable that, that we would talk about this here. I don't know how much time we want to spend on it um, since it's been done to death in the news, in the mainstream news already. For anyone who was not living on this planet in the past couple of months, the Apple partnership document sold for $1.6 million at auction, obviously quite a bit more than was expected. Either of you two have any thoughts on that? Poor Ron Wayne. This is the document with which Apple was founded in 1976. This was originally in Ron Wayne's possession, and he sold it, I think... Uh, in the 80s for uh, between five and $800. And the gentleman to whom he sold it just put it up at Sotheby's and it went for $1.35 million before fees and taxes and, as you said, $1.6 million total. And it's just another opportunity that Ron Wayne missed out on. If only he'd held on to something a little bit longer. That's got to sting a little. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I know he's he's very gracious about it in his interviews and stuff, but, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how that doesn't keep you up at night at least for a week or two. Yeah, it's got to be like the the person that's um, sold the Apple One to the guy who then sold it at the auction for what two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever. Right. And the first guy, I think he sold it for like one tenth of that, maybe if I'm remembering correctly, twenty five thousand. I think it went on eBay for about fifty thousand a year earlier, and then okay. and then it shows up at Christie's of London for over two hundred thousand. So, which I think was overpriced, and uh, but you know, time will tell. But I can kind of understand, but this I can't understand. I, honestly, I don't see it. Well, anybody could think these documents are worth over a million dollars. I, I just so, well, how much enjoyment do you get out of owning that? Yeah, I mean, a working piece of history, hardware, an artifact that I can understand going for a lot of money. And granted, supply and demand. This document is a one of a kind, as opposed to an Apple One, of which there may be fifty of them out there. But still, it's just a piece of paper with a signature, and you can find those signatures on any number of other documents. And it went for 1.35. It's just absurd. And we talked about this on the RCR, the last show, and um, I don't see it as uh, gaining in value or necessarily even keeping its value. And then for that matter, which maybe doesn't matter if the person had so much money, but let's say 50 years from now, I'm just throwing something out there, but Apple computer may not exist. And, and really in the big picture, it may not even be very significant 50 years from now. It'll have its place in history. Um, so then how much is that document worth? Mm-hmm. Something, but, you know, is it worth that much? And, Ken, you had mentioned, you know, that you can get those those autographs in other places. I think Waz will sign pretty much anything you put in front of him. Oh, yeah, he will. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm, it's funny you bring that up because isn't, there's like a little business called Signed by Waz. Yep. Yes. So I, I've wondered, how does that work? So does... Does Steve Wozniak get, I guess, does he get a little bit of money commission out of it? He must. I don't see what else why he'd do it. All, all the money goes to, to his charities. Oh. oh. Oh, it does from there? Yeah. If you, and, and what's neat about it is they, they have some, a bunch of stuff that you can get, um, that, that you can get pre-signed and buy directly from them. But if you have, like, say, an Apple II or something, you can send it to him and he'll sign it and send it back to you. I have two things signed by him. My copy of I Was and my Replica One. Nice. Okay, I'm on the Signed by Waz website, and it says, Mr. Wozniak does not profit from the sale of any of the items listed above. We thank him for generously helping small businesses like this. I can't see where it says anything about charity or which charity it goes to. 
I didn't see that on the website, but I, I had exchanged some emails with them when I was thinking about maybe sending something to get signed. And she said that most of it, the lady that runs it, keeps some of it to, to keep the business going, and the rest of it goes to his favorite charities. Oh, well, they should definitely promote that. I would think so, yeah. Or it could just be a neighbor. <laughs> too, yeah. <laughs> the Steve Wozniak Foundation. Steve doesn't actually know that, that this has, exists. His neighbor just shows up with stuff. Could you sign this? <laughs> what, right. again? Did you lose the last one? <laughs> Uh, one thing I want to mention ab about that document that was auctioned before we move on is that 2011 was actually, in some ways, a good year for Ron Wayne. He may have missed out on the sale of that document, but he was in the news a lot. He was interviewed regarding the passing of Steve Jobs. His book came out, which was very cool. Mm -hmm. So, And all the coverage of him, although they certainly lament the opportunities he missed to become a multi-billionaire, they do seem very respectful of his role in history and his willingness to speak about it so i it seems like although it's been, you're right it's been mostly positive but i have one question he was in and i'm trying to remember i believe it was the pbs uh documentary from a month or two ago yes. and um and they had him riding around in a limo i saw that yeah that was funny what was the, why <laughs> but he was in las vegas wasn't he <laughs> he lives in las vegas yeah oh i was like why is he in a <laughs> I guess they just needed a setting, and they decided, oh, he's an <laughs> Apple co-founder. Let's make him look ritzy and glamorous. Right. Well, and I think it's easy to play what if, you know, with with Ron Wayne and what would have happened because he only stuck around Apple for two weeks or so. Say he had stayed on, who knows how much longer that might have even lasted. I mean, he talks about all the energy and that the Steves had at the time and, and that he was getting older and was afraid of investing the money. So, you know, maybe he could have he could have lasted another year or two. He could have been another victim of Steve Jobs' mercurial personality. I mean, it's, it's impossible to say. Yeah. He could have been run out and lost even the little investment he had. Right, exactly. Uh, and since we brought up this, the, the partnership document, um, it, it makes a nice segue into the next piece here, in which apparently there's uh, Stanford now has a large Apple document archive. Uh, the Daily Mail over in the UK has a nice article about this, as well as MSNBC, which has a photo blog, or the, some of the stuff that's available through this archive. It sounds like in the late 90s, I guess, Apple is actually considering putting together um, an Apple museum, but because of their financial problems and trying to focus on getting back on track, they instead donated all this stuff to Stanford, and it's now available to the public to, to view. You can't just show up and knock on their door. You have to request material two days ahead of time at, at least. Um, but it's neat to see some of the stuff that was sitting probably in Apple's vault somewhere for a long time and now is available to the public. Huh. Yeah, it was it was after Steve Jobs came back in 1997. I was just reading about it. I don't remember all the details, but it was definitely 1997. So I'm trying to find here's something from Engadget. Yeah, it's not like a public place. It's just a big climate-controlled warehouse. Right, it's in a secret location, so you have to request stuff ahead of time. You can't just go wander through it. Yeah, I believe that um, at some point Apple, and maybe they won't, or I know Steve Jobs was never for this, but it seems like Apple needs to consider having a corporate museum in the future. I think that would be wise. Especially in the flying saucer. <laughs> yeah, and they're building this whole new campus. Why not devote a little section of it to their history? Sure. You know, they can bring back the, uh, what was it, the Icon Garden? Mm-hmm, yeah, with... Uh, Clarus, the dog cow. One thing you can also look up while you're at Stanford is the complete history of Juice GS. They have a copy of every issue, at least from Volume 7, in their collection. They're one of 10 museums or libraries in the world who have Juice GS right now. Nice. 
And speaking of JuiceGS, we just published another issue. Uh, the last issue of the calendar year 2011 came out with a lovely photo by Andy Malloy of the Tiger Learning Computer on the cover. This is our second 24-page issue in the calendar year 2011. We haven't done two 24-page issues in one year in 10 years, but we just had that much content that we had to get out. It's, a, in my biased opinion, a pretty cool issue. It has the first full-length article by Eric Shepard in seven years in which he reviews the Steve Jobs biography. There is a collection of tributes to Steve Jobs by the people who knew him 20 or 30 years ago, including Mark Muntz, John Romero, and Paul Terrell, who ran the computer store that first ordered the Apple II. And as we always say, there's much, much more in this issue. Yeah, I was really impressed with it when it showed up. I, um, everything except the CFFA 3000 review was, was great. <laughs> and that one you were just indifferent to? Uh, it was subpar. Do you attribute that to the authorship? I do, yeah. This guy keeps writing mediocre crap. <laughs> yeah, that McGinnis guy, I tell you. Uh, can't stand him. And David, thank you for being a subscriber. I appreciate your business. No, no problem. <laughs> I have to support my uh, brethren zine publishers. <laughs> that is true. But it's worth reading, too. <laughs> oh, it doesn't just go in the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> or in the birdcage. A <laughs> couple of sort of odd news items related to Steve Jobs, I guess. So we'll kind of go through these real quick. Steve Jobs has had the first statue uh, dedicated to him posthumously. Oh, yeah. Was it in Hungary? Yeah, it's it's in Hungary. And it, it was commissioned by Graphisoft, which uh, I guess is a, a high-end graphic software publisher. The statue was crafted by Hungarian sculptor Erno Toth. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, it's sort of him standing at, at a weird angle. He's ha he's holding a, what looks like an iPhone in his right hand. And his left hand, I, I don't really know what he's doing with that. It looks like he just sneezed and he's looking at what came out. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're in that part of the world, maybe stop by and visit, take a couple of pictures. It's a bronze statue, six and a half feet tall. That's not, is that life size? Is that how tall he was? I don't know. Maybe like six feet and an inch, but I don't think six and a half feet. Yeah, I think, I would think that people would note that because that's kind of unusually tall. Maybe that's with the pedestal or something. <laughs> yeah, the pedestal they carried around with him so that people could <laughs> put him on it. Yeah, I hate to be critical, but... uh I don't like what they did to his face, as well as the hand he's looking at. Yeah, it's it's sort of an odd <laughs> statue. <laughs> but you can definitely see that he's wearing his usual attire. Yeah. Yeah, it is an unusual... It's the thought that counts. Well, not to turn the show into, you know, art critic or whatever. We're all a critic, <laughs> right? right? But, uh, but, you know, I know what I like. No, no but seriously, um, it just kind of bugs me because it, it's obviously trying to be realistic, yet it's not completely realistic. And I... It's like, why don't you just make it realistic if you're going to? I don't know. Or make it really weird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. or, or what's the other term? Picasso-ish. What's that called? Um, surrealistic. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, we obviously know what we're talking about. And is that the artist theory? He looks like a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> you must use the force, Harry. <laughs> okay, moving right along. Um, and the final... Um, the final item today that I have for Steve Jobs is uh, the Recording Academy announced its uh, 2012 Special Merit Awards recipients, and Steve Jobs was on the list to receive one posthumously. This is basically a Grammy for people who aren't actually musicians. And what's this about some Apple software update? Uh, a number of Apple II emulators have been updated or released 
over the past month or so. ActiveJS has a new version that updates it for Firefox and Chrome. Uh, the Open Emulator has been updated to version 1.02. Uh, that uh, expands the emulator's capabilities from just the Apple One to the Apple Two as well. And Egan Ford, who we also know is Data Jerk over at the Jerkworks, has put his Apple Game Server online. Online. That one in particular was interesting to me because of the way that works. Basically, it, it serves up game files to your Apple II through the sound port on your on your Apple, so that you can play these games from the internet on your Apple II. So you just hook up any sort of an audio player to your Apple II, whether it's your Mac, your iPod, or your iPad, or your iPhone, and you can load a game? Right, yeah. You, you plug the, the cassette input on the Apple II into your audio output on your Mac or your PC, go to this website and play this file, and it serves the sound through the cassette port, which the Apple will interpret as data. Neat. Yeah. Now, when you mention ActiveGS, uh, there are two different applications with that name. One is a web-based browser. Which, is there any connection between ActiveGS by the FTA and Bill Martin's virtual Apple? Yes, the, the ActiveGS is the that's that's the engine that's behind the virtual Apple emulator. I thought so. Right. But then there's also an iOS app called ActiveGS. Right. And there's a standalone ActiveGS emulator that you can download and run locally. I had no idea. That third one, is that for a particular platform or is it cross-platform Java compatible? Um, I, I have it on Windows and I'm pretty sure it's available for the Mac as well. I'm not sure about um, other platforms or anything like that. So when the FTA issues an update, they're simultaneously updating all three branches? I think so. Well, the focus is on on the the web plugin, and so that's that's when you go to the web page, that's what they tend to talk about. And then, oh yeah, there's also if you want to do it locally, you can do it that way. David, do you use emulators much, or do you prefer to be on the metal? I guess um, I don't use emulators much, so yeah, I guess I prefer to be on the metal. Um, I do have, uh, I guess, the one I use the most or I mess around with is the Lisa emulator, the Lisa M E M. It's called. It's it's like a lot of things, so to be honest. It's like something I wanted to do more of. So you were saying that you wish you did more emulation? Yes, it's one of those things where I've my intention has been to um, look more into a lot of these different emulators, specifically the Apple 2DS ones and some of the older Commodore ones, but I just I haven't as yet. So pretty busy life, but it'll it'll come to that. Now, is this primarily just a time constraint, or do you really prefer the hardware? Um... I think I always prefer the hardware, but it's it's definitely more of a time constraint. Mm-hmm. So three kids and all that. Well, let's see, three kids, three podcasts, <laughs> something's got to go, David. <laughs> right. Got to get rid of the kids. That's right. I could probably back off the eating a little. Got a little thick lately. <laughs> Can't, maybe you could emulate the kids, you know, like <laughs> Eliza or something. It's the same thing. They, they passed the Turing test. <laughs> <laughs> What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. We have a few items today, not a whole lot. There was an Apple One that made uh, some news that was available for $175,000. I'll buy it now. Did not sell. Big surprise. Yeah. Uh, It looks like it's in nice condition. It has the original ceramic 6502. It has the cassette port interface and the person that owned it originally or owns it now built a sort of a weird kind of almost typewriterish case around it and I, I was reading through this and there was a weird statement in here about keeping it in the USA 
Oh, it belonged to like a military veteran who died, something like that? Yeah. And it looks like, yeah, it looks like they, they took that statement out of the text. I wonder what desire they could have had for that. I mean, why keep it in the U.S.? It says that he, he worked for Atari and Apple as a programmer, troubleshooter. Um, he loved technology and served his country in Vietnam, which may have eventually caused his death from cancer, 3-5-2003. Oh, I see. You said you took the part about keeping it in the U.S. Yeah, there was, there was a statement after that that said not to be used, but to be cared for to remain in the United States, which I thought was odd. Yeah, 10% of the proceeds would have gone to the Make-A-Wish Foundation had it sold. And do I understand correctly that they purposely blanked out the serial number? Because the description says that the serial number is 00-pound-pound. So all they're trying to say is, what, that it's in the first 100? I don't know. Why why would you be worried about just not saying what it really is, too? I don't know. I mean, maybe they are afraid of putting on a number that belongs to an an actual Apple one somewhere else, and they'll say, oh, yours is obviously a fake because I have that one. Well, if you look, there's a there's a shot of the back of the of the the PCB, and in really small text, it says something about numbers will be revealed to the new owner. They actually blurred the serial number out of the image. Huh. I'm having a hard time thinking of a legitimate reason to do that. I mean, if you were selling a car on eBay, which I've done, you put up the vehicle identification number so that people can get the history of your car. Right. It establishes the uh, the authenticity. Right. So why would you purposely obscure the authenticity of your hardware? And you know that last one that sold for so much money, that was in England, right? At the whichever the auction house is there, mm-hmm. the, yeah, Christie's. And then Steve Wozniak was there, I believe, right? He was. Um, and this guy's in Peoria, Arizona. I mean, if you're trying to get that much money out of it, I almost think it'd be worthwhile to either drive or fly and meet up with Steve Wozniak. You know, meet him and have him like inspect it and sign something saying, you know, I validate that this is a real Apple One and so on. Right. I would do that, you know, if you really want to get premium cash for it. I would call up Sotheby's or Christie's and have them handle it. Yeah, why not? Not eBay. Yeah, especially with eBay, you're dealing directly with the buyer and starting off at $175,000. I mean, I don't think even the Christie's auction started there. You know, you start low and then you bid high. Yeah, I'd start something more reasonable, like $150,000, so it could be bid up. I'd probably start at $20,000. But then I'd probably like set a reserve of a quarter million or something. Anyway, yeah, just a it's a good find, and it probably is real. But there are these strange questions that we don't have answers to. It's got free shipping, but then delivery is estimated within twelve and thirteen business days. Oh, you get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah, you can't go ahead and get it to me overnight. Well, if, if I were going <laughs> to pay one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars for anything, I would drive out to Peoria from wherever I was in the country and pick it up. Uh-huh. I wouldn't trust that to the mail or any yeah. any kind of delivery service. I should point out that the seller has a feedback rating of 541. It's 100% positive. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So he sounds like he's legit. Yeah, again, for that kind of money, you'd almost expect the uh, seller to fly to you mm-hmm. right. with it. Kind of like the top-level Kickstarter reward. Donate this much, and we'll come to you and sell you our book and show you the movie and play music for you. <laughs> right. Or you can call me at any hour. Right. <laughs> Uh, between nine and five have anything more reasonable on ebay this month mike uh well no open apple podcast would be complete without at least one mention of the apple three because i'm a fan and this one i thought was interesting this is an apple three that's been upgraded to an apple three plus which makes it fairly rare and it had the titan three plus two e emulator as well so i thought that was kind of neat looks like it sold for 550 dollars kind of surprising considering there was a an apple three that sold a couple of weeks back for for well over 900 dollars it wasn't nearly as featureful as this Wow. 
they've really gone up then. Oh, yeah. I haven't owned an Apple III um, since like the late 90s. I had a profile hard drive and, you know, you could pick one up for less than 200 bucks or cheaper back then. Yeah, they're, they're, they go for uh, a pretty penny on eBay. Uh, moving to the next item, can you found another Apple II? Oh, yeah, and they've been going real crazy dollars lately. It's a very nice Apple II. Yeah, this is another Apple II, not a Plus. Uh, let's see, do we have a serial number on this? Yeah, we do. It says it was built in the 19th week of 1979. At the time of this podcast recording, it will be closing in about seven hours. It's already had 34 bids, with the current one being $1,050, not including the shipping of 1537 But it looks like a great condition Apple II. Uh, certainly one of the early models. It looks like it doesn't have the heat grills on the side. Is that correct? Oh, wait. Yes, it does. It does, yeah. And, and this this is not a Rev Zero Apple II. Okay. Yeah, this, they say low serial number, but it's from 1979. That's a much later one. It's a very late one. They were producing two pluses by then. It's being sold by Carrington Vanston. Do you see that? What? I'm, I'm kidding, but look no, at the seller. One oh, <laughs> <laughs> One megahertz. Somebody just trying to capitalize on his brand. Mike, since this is not a Rev Zero, would you say that a thousand bucks is a fair asking price? Well, um, I would say that a fair asking price is anything that, that I could afford. Um, <laughs> and a thousand dollars is more than I can afford. Now, it's, it, I, I'm guessing it'll go for a lot more than this probably in the last hour. I expect to see it shoot up quite a bit. And given given some of the other prices, I'd, I'd probably say three or four thousand by the time it's done. Wow. Supply and demand, huh? Which is funny because these things are getting listed like crazy and they're still going for three, four $4,000. And, you know, it could be the, the lighting, obviously just the photography, not not the reality. But doesn't the, the beige case look a little light? I wonder if it was retro-brighted. That's what I'm thinking. Or somebody just took really good care of it. Mm-hmm. See, the thing is with something like this, if, you, if it starts getting up the premium dollars like that, I kind of would want to have a box with it and, I don't know, hold set up. I want a brand new one. Unboxing video. <laughs> there is one of those on eBay, isn't there, Mike? Uh, in fact, there is. It's um, it's this is a, a later Apple IIe. It's one of the platinum ones. It's the last version of the IIe that was produced. But according to the seller, this is new in box and and hasn't hasn't ever been opened. Oh, I see it. He put some of his own tape over it because I guess the Apple Apple tape was peeling. So I guess there's no way to really prove that he didn't open it. But that's what he's saying. I always like the platinum. I thought that was a good direction. I liked, you know, the Mac Plus. They made a platinum one to go along with the Apple IIe. Yeah, they, that was sort of the the ultimate IIe, where they'd stuffed everything into it from the previous versions. And it shipped with the 256, right? Uh, I think it was still 128. But it should be interesting to see what that goes for, and whether people are are how hungry they are for just a, any kind of unopened Apple products, or you know, if it's it's because it's a later IIe, whether people just aren't going to care about it that much. And you notice it's in Cupertino, California, yep. the 2E. I wonder if it's an Apple employee who's selling it. Uh, he said that he bought it in the 90s because he wanted it as a, a collector's item. He bought it from that Shreve place. Oh, yeah, down in Louisiana. Yeah, that was one of those places that, that after Apple stopped supporting the Apple II, they bought a back inventory and sold it at discounts. I remember them. There was also pre-owned electronics and Sun Remarketing, big names. Yeah, those were the good days. You could get anything you wanted if you just kept calling. Yeah. So there's currently almost five days left on this auction. I, I don't know if it'll be. I don't know if this podcast will be out before it ends. But currently there are four bids, and it's at two hundred and five dollars and three cents. Such a deal. 
I want to bring up a game that I found on eBay. That would be the Leather Goddesses of Phobos, the Infocom <laughs> text adventure. David, you're chuckling at me. Oh, yeah. That's a cool, that's a funny game. Yeah, most Infocom games are. This one ends in two days, so that would be January 5th. It currently has a starting bid of $10, but nobody has bid on it yet. There aren't many pictures. There's not a long description. The guy's just saying that still, it comes in the box, which is a little bit worn. He's missing the 3D glasses and the Passport Infocom catalog. But if anybody wants to play a well-known text adventure on your Apple II, Leather Goddesses for only 10 bucks and plus $5 shipping. Well, one thing I like, always thought was funny about this particular game, too, is it has that scratch-and-sniff card. <laughs> you know, one of the responses on our reader survey did say that they want more scratch-and-sniff pages with each episode of Open Apple. <laughs> we'll get right to work on that. Now, Mike, you've been playing some Infocom games lately, aren't you? Yeah, in the spirit of uh, uh, the blogging Ultima blog, which was uh, by a guy named John Cage, he played through every single uh, version of Ultima, starting with Calabeth, and I think he wrapped up with nine. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to play through Infocom's titles starting from the beginning. And I just put the, the blog post up yesterday about it, and I'm going to be starting with Zork 1 tonight. Have you played these games before? I've played most of them. Um, I think I only finished two or three of them. I'm that I've been that way too. Yeah, well, it was either because you know I, I got to a puzzle I couldn't get through, or I got distracted by another game, and I, I you know I, I rewatched Get Lamp the other day and thought this might be a fun thing to do. Didn't you give me your copy of Get Lamp? Uh, I gave you one of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I, I think I had two or three copies at one point. Oh, that's right, because you ordered it and then K Festers got their own. Right. Oh yeah, you guys you guys met Jason Scott and heard him and everything. Oh, yeah, he's been to K-Fest a couple of times, and he says he'll be coming in 2012 as well. Oh, cool. And bringing cameras. Well, it's Jason Scott. Everything must be documented. His life is precious. <laughs> Old or new, it's still cool in Retro Views. This month, we are having a retro view section, which is the optional part of the Open Apple podcast. And as usual, we have left the topic up to our guest of the month. And David has chosen an interesting topic, not a piece of hardware or software, but a p an individual. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to this topic? Okay. Uh, thanks, Ken. So basically, I, know I had reached out to you guys. I'm a regular listener of the show. I enjoy it a lot. And um so I expressed that uh, I'm a very big fan of Steve Jobs and, of course, of Apple Computer. And my interest in computer history all uh, came out of my interest first in um, the Lisa and then uh, the Macintosh. And that just grew into the, you know, wanting to know more about the history of Apple and so on. So with Steve Jobs' recent death and all the coverage of him and documentaries, and uh, which I've seen, and, and the book, which I own, and then uh, the expanded interview session with Robert X. Cringely, which I went and, went and saw. Um, after that, uh, it started making me reflect a little bit on, uh, well, what about, you know, John Scully? So basically, I reflected on, you know, when I became a, uh, a big fan of the Macintosh and Apple and stuff, it was in uh, late 1986. And so John Scully was a guy running Apple. And um, so I guess to cut this to the chase is, um, I think he's, he's gotten a bad rap. And uh, certainly he was maybe to blame or, or he's mentioned a lot of blame and regret about Steve Jobs and that falling out. You, you know, I think in a nutshell and what the interview I did with John Scully recently came out is that 
there's sort of two big misconceptions. First, that John Scully, quote unquote, fired Steve Jobs. And, and secondly, that uh, he you know ran Apple into the ground. Hmm. So I wanted to, I started like looking more into that. And I, I think I came to a conclusion that it wasn't true. Now, this is here and now, I guess, when I first approached you guys, it, I, I hadn't uh, thought about uh, interviewing John Scully yet. I just thought about discussing these things. Right. Yeah, I went and interviewed the guy, which is pretty amazing. I think, Ken, in an email, you asked me, like, how'd I do that? And I've had a number of people ask me that. And I give my wife a lot of credit because uh, she kind of pushed me into, uh, I asked. It's that easy, huh? <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, but I think just like I set up the interview and the recording, um, you know, I set up sort of my um, my take on it, what I was trying to get at. You know, so I approached uh, John Scully's assistant about, you know, I want to talk to him about him and about what he did at Apple, what he felt he achieved while being there and, you know, and, and innovations and so on. Mm -hmm. So to assist us in this conversation, since this is a historic figure of Apple's past, we brought in the Apple II community's leading historian, Dr. Steve Weirich. Hi, Steve. Hello. You're no stranger to the show, having been on here back in May of 2011 for show number four. And you have the extensive history of the Apple II and the company that produced it at your website, appletohistory.org. Now, you have some opinions of your own about John Scully. Yes, well, uh, I came to some of those opinions actually after listening to uh, the wonderful interview that uh, uh, David did. And what were your opinions going into that interview? Like he said, uh, John Scully has kind of traditionally held kind of a negative um, position in the minds of Apple II users of my generation. I was active on uh, uh, Genie back in the uh, late 80s and a little into the 90s and uh, around the era when it was, yeah, Apple II was going, you know, away in terms of Apple's interest in it. And we kind of just said, oh, it's the management. It's it's John Scully. He's messing with it. And so we, we kind of Put him up to be the villain. Uh, after the number of years that have passed, and the uh, feelings are, you know, certainly not like they were back then. And after hearing this uh, uh, comments made by John Scully, I, I learned that uh, he actually had a bit more um, of a positive, considerably more of a positive effect on the longevity of the Apple II than I was ever aware of. Yeah, if I might say, I'm so glad. Um... Steve, you're on the show. <laughs> I'm really glad you guys were able to get Steve in because certainly he can speak to the Apple II aspect of it a lot more, you know, a lot more than I I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the decisions they were business related, not necessarily because John Scully just loved the Apple II more than he loved the Macintosh. Or he was a businessman and he was the CEO and president of Apple Computer. He's brought in, and you know, this is part of the falling out between him and Steve, which ultimately came to the board was the the um, direction of the Apple II and whether. Yeah, the Mac is the future, so therefore we should just do nothing more related to the Apple II, I think was kind of sums up Steve Jobs' feeling, feelings at the time. Right, and, and John Scully was taking the less, um, less visionary approach, but the more practical business approach, and saying, you guys, if you want to work with the Mac, that's fine, but the Mac is not self-supporting just yet. And unless you want to really gut this company, you're going to have to keep the Apple II, which has a large user base, which still has good sales, is still outselling the Mac, at least in its early years. you got to keep this going if you want to keep this future, the Macintosh, from dying in its infancy. 
But why was the Mac the future? If the Apple II was the cash cow, why not capitalize on that and support that? Well, there's lots of ways that things could have happened differently. Uh, I had a couple of blog posts I put out in the past year that proposed my alternate history of the Apple II, uh, where had Apple run the company uh, with their products as they do now, you wouldn't have uh, just taken a new platform and uh, pushed the other one out the door. You would have found a way to bring the software and bring the users of the old platform into the new one by making an emulation mode or something like that available so that people wouldn't feel like they were being eliminated. They would feel like they were upgrading. Uh, it didn't happen that way. Their technology probably wasn't there. But because you know they couldn't do that, they had to still keep the Apple II going. They had they and John Scully did that. He saw this is where the company needed its money, uh, its income to still come from. So he said, "Look, we got to get things going. You got to go forward with your Apple IIc uh, that was introduced in April of '84 uh, after the Macintosh came out. You've got to uh, here's a good reason to come up with a, a better Apple II, the Apple II GS that uh, came out later." Uh, so he kept things going, and had it not been for Scully, if Jobs had still been running uh, rain over the company, it's very possible he would have said what he thought about the Apple II, you know, this is the past, let's go on with Macintosh, this is the future, and the company may not have survived. Mike, what's your take on the decisions Scully made? Was he responsible for them? Were they the right decisions? Well, I think overall it was, you know, as, as David and, and Dr. Steve were saying, it's a, it's a business decision, as we discussed earlier in the with the Waz article where he called the the Mac a failure, um, and it was for from a financial standpoint for a long time. They needed the Apple II around to continue to pay for Mac development until it caught on, and eventually they were in the black. And at that point, they could go ahead and retire the Apple II line. My only disappointment was simply in the way that the Apple II GS was treated. You know, it was pushed into the educational market. It wasn't marketed at all, largely because it it looked like a color Macintosh. Um, but but I mean other than that I don't uh, I don't fault Scully for really any of the decisions he made around uh, the Apple II. So is there somebody else that you do fault? No, I, I think that it's just you got the the 6502 chip was was an 8-bit uh, processor obviously, and you can only go so far with that sort of architecture without incorporating it as emulation into another machine. And and if you look at the way Apple has done things pretty much since its inception. They don't look back too much. If you buy a Mac today, it can only run a previous version of Mac OS so far back, and then it, that's along the lines of, of what I was thinking. The, you know, the Apple II line was an eight-bit computer, and I was just looking up the Apple III because I was because I frankly don't know that much about it by heart. Because I was thinking maybe was it a sixteen-bit computer, but I guess it really wasn't. It was a slightly more advanced eight-bit computer. They had looked at at putting a a sixteen-bit chip in there. And they had also looked at doing multiprocessor options, but this was in 78, 79 when the Apple III was in development. And at the time, I think it was just seen as too expensive. But I wonder if people, you know, Apple II users, let's say specifically, or just Apple users in general would have felt differently if, say, the Apple III had been introduced and it was essentially, you know, a 16-bit Apple, you know, and then the Apple IV was a 32-bit Apple. If that lineage might have, might have seemed more... Uh, not replacing, but just ev evolutionary. Uh, do you see what I mean? Like, like Mac users versus Apple II users are just like Apple is abandoning Apple II users by going with the Macintosh versus it all being just totally evolutionary. Well, that's that's where if, if decisions made at the time of the design of the Apple III had been done differently, if they had not hobbled 
the Apple II emulation had instead made it very robust and and sold, it could have sold the Apple III as the next Apple II, so to speak, and that could have been the, the better computer. There's other things that happened that made that a problem too, but you know, assuming things worked out properly, that could have been the evolutionary machine from the Apple II. Uh, maybe then you'd have a 16-bit Apple III that would come out sometime after that, and then they'd be ready for the Lisa Macintosh 32-bit uh, micros. As far as evolution of the Apple product line, I, I could see the case being made for that. But I, I, as, as far as compatibility between the two, the three, and then the the Mac and moving into the 16 and 32, but I, I don't know how long it makes sense for a company to to maintain that that backward compatibility before it becomes a problem. And and when you got a guy like Steve Jobs who's pushing the Macintosh anyway and and is willing to just burn burn the past down to build the future it sort of makes sense to me anyway that why apple went that way oh certainly but i mean we didn't have people who had the apple II who were whining about the uh the fact that it didn't run apple one software you know there there weren't that many apple one users number one but number two uh that there was so much more you could do with the apple II than you could with the apple one and there was so much more conceivably one could have done with the apple three than with the apple II. it had a better operating system it had a lot more modern features in it. It had more memory. You know, there's a lot, 80 columns. There's a lot of things Apple III had that were really well done uh, conceptually. It's just the implementation and how they chose to do it in terms of the Apple II. It didn't work out. They said, no, Apple II's for home and, home and school. Apple III's for business. We're not going to let the two mix. Yeah, that was kind of a, a bad direction there, right. I think. That was part of the problem, I think, in marketing, too. And that's where in the 80s and the 90s we felt this way about the Apple II uh, because, oh, Apple's just pushing the Apple II into schools. They're not doing anything with it, and they're saying the Mac is all for business. And look at all these people that are using Apple Works for things that work so much faster and better than stuff you can do on a Mac right now at that time in the 80s. And, uh, you know, as a not just an Apple historian, this very much parallels the uh, Commodore 64 and the Amiga sort of uh, split off and the their audiences and so on too smaller scale though with amiga versus the mac and so on mm. well it's interesting that you mentioned the amiga wasn't the amiga the, the a motorola 68000 based machine mm -hmm. yeah just like the macintosh yeah really when it comes to the what the 2gs did it was a better macintosh than the first macintosh was um did you guys happen to have a chance of uh, real last minute i sent you all a uh something i found uh like a sales chart yes of market growth and if you notice that it, it yeah, 1984, it was showing, um, what is this, 1 million sales of Apple II compared to Macintosh sold one-third of that right. in 1984. And then even in 1985, 900,000 versus 200,000 on the Mac. 1986, 700,000 Apple II to 380,000. So it wasn't until 1987 that the Mac started selling more units than the Apple II. So a good two years after Steve Jobs left and John Scully was running the place. Yes. And then Apple, of course, continued to sell pretty darn well, well into, you know, it didn't really start dropping significantly. Well, it dropped fairly significantly in 88, but then it's kind of stayed stable the next couple of years and then 1993 when it was canceled. I'm curious about where the, how they got the numbers, because I know Apple's been very tight-lipped about re, uh, announcing their sales of, of uh, products, both in the present and in the past. There was a time when they would announce, oh, we've sold this many million computers so far, and then they just stopped announcing it after a while. But the numbers certainly do parallel, uh, you know, what I saw experienced at that time. And it is interesting to see in 87 that it took until 87 until the Mac finally was outselling the Apple II. And only by a little bit. It really wasn't until 88 that it significantly outsold the Apple II. Yes, yes. So even, even long, you know, longer. 
Well, and wasn't 88 when they switched over to the Mac 2 when you had more of a desktop form factor? Yeah, it was late 87 when that, or well, no, maybe early, mid 87, but when the Macintosh 2 came out. And that's out. kind of when the when the capabilities of the Mac really sort of took off and, and became more usable, at least in my opinion, than, than an Apple II or a 2GS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems around that time is when they began to have some color. Wasn't the Macintosh 2X a color uh, computer, mm-hmm. or is it yeah. 2FX? The, no, the Apple, I'm sorry, the Macintosh 2 M- was the Macintosh first. Macintosh 2X, yeah. Yeah, well, just the 2, the regular old 2, had um, open architecture and uh, and color, you know, very similar to its uh, brethren. So that's around 87 or 88, yes. Uh, it just It's a very interesting set of figures, uh, uh, and it I thought it very nicely showed that timeline. And as you pointed out, you know, Scully, in your interview with him, uh, he actually made the company more profitable during those years after he came in than it had been before he came. So I have a question for David. You said in an email to me that Scully has been very hard on himself over his time at Apple. Do you think he's being too hard? It does he view him, his actions and the consequences more negatively than reality reflects? I, I think even, you know, me having an opportunity to talk to him in person, you know, so my interview with him, I think he's still being a little too hard on himself or he's not giving him, how about he's not giving himself enough credit? Again, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs and I'll, I'll defend Steve Jobs in lots of ways, even though I can clearly see the man's faults and, you know, bad aspects of his personalities. You know, he was human, like we all are. You know, Steve Jobs, so I've heard Steve Jobs defended as, uh, well, he wasn't really, he didn't invent anything, and he wasn't really so much a visionary as he just connected the dots and saw, you know, how things should, you know, things like that. So, I mean, I think John Scully deserves sort of the same defense. He certainly connected dots and saw trends and, um, you know, was he a visionary? Uh, well, I guess that's debatable. Yeah, so anyway, answer your question. I, I don't think he gives himself enough credit. That's why, and this was one guy's opinion in a 1993 New York Times article at the very end of the second part. I read that one little quote because it kind of jumped out at me. Someone recognized him as such when he stepped down from Apple, uh, even though he's being hammered over the Newton and other things like that at the time. And I think clearly if you read about, like, the say, Wikipedia and some other writings about John Scully that, you know, he was not... Uh, handling Apple's day-to-day business very well in the last couple of years. And, and, you know, that's not good. Therefore, that's why he was asked to leave by the board, ultimately, and stuff like that. Yeah, but consider how much he did and uh, and not having the technical background, but he spent so much time uh, working with Steve Jobs, uh, formulating how they should do what they could do. He He absorbed a lot of info. Uh, by being there and working with Jobs, that uh, he was able to take the concepts he knew from his other business, uh, working with Pepsi, Mm -hmm. and move it on to say, well, how can we implement this in the world of computers? And he he did it successfully. He helped to build up the Mac, and he helped protect the Apple II, their cash cow, at the time, while it was necessary to do so. you know, and he didn't just keep the Apple II Plus going or the Apple IIe going. He introduced, he let them introduce several new products. Mm-hmm. It is unfortunate. I mean, he, at some point they finally had to say, no, it's not worth the money anymore we're spending to do any more Apple II products. So we didn't see the, the ROM for the Mark Twain uh, uh, come out like we were hoping it would come out. Um, but historically speaking, at some point you had to stop supporting the old and the new. You had to kind of move on to the new, and, and I can see that now. I couldn't see it very well then, but it, it sadly it makes sense. And I'm glad you said that, Steve, because one thing that jumped out at me during our interview, um, and it, it was so great to talk 
to John, <laughs> but frankly, I didn't really talk to him that much. Yeah, he, he was very good. <laughs> he at he just did most talking. of the talking. Yeah, he was good. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I didn't quite get to ask him everything I wanted to ask or follow the exact direction I had things laid out. But yeah, I still think it went very well, and he kind of answered most of the stuff I was. I think because I kind of set it up in you know in a good way. But one thing that John Scully mentioned a few times was that. You know, he was not a technologist, and uh, he, and certainly I'm, I'm sure he's proud that he's a successful and good marketer. But um, I think he is a technologist, and uh, along those lines, he doesn't give himself enough credit there. I, I think I'm a technologist. Now, I'm an IT professional, but I've never been a programmer. And frankly, I'm not much of a hardware person other than the basics, like so I repair computers, but the, just the basic stuff, um, you know, hard drives and batteries and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that makes me any less of a technologist or a, you know, computer person. So I think he's kind of didn't give himself enough credit with that. Because, yeah, I think he proved that he he learned his field and technology while running Apple. Yeah, to do anything, uh, if you're going to be head of a company, even if you're not the technical expert, you still have to know understand enough about what it is your company's selling to be able to lead it well. And he mm -hmm. he did something right during that time, considering how you said the profits had gone up. He did something right at that time uh, and led the company at a time when Steve Jobs certainly wasn't ready to do so. Now, one thing I'd really love to hear you guys comment on, um, maybe more so you, Steve. One thing I mentioned at the beginning of the interview is, um, you know, so I came into being passionate and excited about Apple, specifically the Macintosh in my case, in late 1986. And then I ultimately didn't get my own one till late 89, so 90. But so I felt it was a very exciting, innovative time. You know, I, I bought all the magazines, Mac User, Mac World, Mac Week, when I could. That was a hard one to get a subscription to. So I ate it all up and I was very excited about what was going on with the company. So not only did he do a good job and make money, I think things were exciting even surrounding the company. Not as exciting when Steve Jobs came back, but we kind of got built up for that too <laughs> with how badly it did the last couple of years beforehand. But so Steve, I, I guess coming from you, it um, things weren't so exciting really, right? With the Apple II kind of, maybe especially by the early 90s, sort of really starting to decline and not getting any attention. Well, it was it was frustrating because here's, here's a computer that, and frankly, after I stopped using uh, my Apple II GS, I had a hard drive crash and I lost a bunch of stuff and I kind of got discouraged about that and we had bought a, a Mac LC3 for the family to use so I grudgingly used it a little bit and I said, yeah, it's okay but this Clarisworks is just really slow and clunky on this thing and Appleworks just runs so smoothly. I mean, I can do stuff faster and easier with this uh, text-based stuff than I can with all this uh, graphics that the, the Mac LC's got. Uh, it, it was it was kind of disappointing that I was having to feel like I was stepping back in terms of my capabilities by going to the Mac at that time instead of using what I had been accustomed to using for several years. We just kind of felt uh, dumped on probably at that time, and that's the way everybody in the Apple II community is. Yeah, Apple's screwing us, you know. We don't get the we don't get the love like the Macintosh gets, and uh, it was a little discouraging. Uh, and and I had that's why I had done. Um, a year ago, I I, uh, I uh, did that parody of the uh, Dan Fogelberg song, the mm -hmm. Another Old Lang Syne, and the one line in there that uh, that made me think of it is this place where in his song he he says goodbye to the girl he's met and he feels that old familiar pain, uh, probably back in school when this happened, and that's where I you know in my song I had put it and said I saw this ad for Macintosh and I felt this old familiar pain because at a time it was for us Apple II users it was kind of like Mac you know they're they're stealing all the good stuff 
Uh, it was painful at the time. And Steve, you said that you did a song parody that referenced Scully in a rather uh, negative light. <laughs> well, yes, the, uh, the American Pie uh, parody. And <sighs> I've been trying to think about a different name to put in there. Because clearly, uh, I mean, even at the time that the Apple IIe was discontinued, Scully's gone at that time. You know, he wasn't even uh, working there anymore. So I clearly should put some other name in there, but I'm not sure what to put in that's two syllables that fits. So I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to change that because I, I really think I should, uh, I should withdraw that uh, uh, disparaging remark and put in something different. Now, Steve, your opinion of John Scully was such that his book, what's it called, The Odyssey? Or uh, Odyssey, yes. Just Odyssey, yeah. When Odyssey came out, you wouldn't even touch it, but you were certainly open to listening to David's recent interview with John. So what has made you more receptive to these alternative takes on history? Well, hearing his interview, you know, certainly uh, I, I just, I didn't necessarily hate Scully with all my being, but he he just was kind of like, yeah, he's the guy that was running the company when it was going downhill. It's kind of his fault. And I just didn't want to hear what he had to say. Now, in retrospect, I probably would be interested in reading his book. And it is uh, hearing this interview that uh, uh, David did that uh, changed my mind about that. But why even listen to the interview? Why not just say, oh, it's an interview with that Scully guy. I'm going to delete it. <laughs> I think it's because I think it's because of uh, uh, the I have enjoyed so much what uh, David's done with the, the like the retro computing roundtable uh, that I thought, well, pff, David's interviewing him. I ought to listen to that one. <laughs> I see. So you weren't tuning in for John. You were tuning in for David. Well, a little of both. <laughs> a little of both. I should have talked more. <laughs> we, we should have gotten John to interview David. Oh, there we go. Yes. <laughs> I actually got a couple of complaints. I'll say a couple from about how long the introduction was. And, and that alarmed me too. When I finally put it together, cause you don't hear John Scully for over five minutes. And I was like, Oh, but I just felt it was important to set up the, the, um, the interview in such a way. And then, you know, there's good two minutes of it. I'm actually reading this history and background, you know, in front of him, if you will, you know, on the, on the Skype with him. In case he wanted to interject or, oh, that's not right or something. I felt it was fair. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but then that's all the talking I do for the most part. <laughs> You'd almost have to do that, though, to to give the background for those who don't know as much about yeah. him as, uh, as you did in, in doing your research for it. And otherwise, he'd have to sit there and tell it all himself. Uh, right. Maybe it just gets that stuff out of the way so we can get on the stuff that you wanted to talk about. I, I thought... Yeah, it was a little bit long, but it, it worked out. It worked out because he certainly did not shy off from the microphone once you gave him a chance. No. Like an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just part one? No, that's both. Oh, okay. It's like 44 minutes, part one, I think 30, 38 minutes, part two. And it was well worth a listen. If the people listening have not yet heard it, it's well worth going to uh, David's Classic Computing site and uh, take a listen. It's just a good, uh, a good ability for John to tell him about what's going on. And, and that's another thing, too. When John Scully was talking to uh, David, he wasn't... You know, David told me when he sent something about it to me in email, he said, well, it's not very much about the Apple II. I thought it actually had a lot about the Apple II in there. And he wasn't going into it with, uh, say, as apologizing to a big Apple II fan for how things were in the past. He just kind of said the way it was. And so I don't think he was doing anything to uh, try to make himself look good to Apple II people. He was just saying how, how it worked out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if it exists anywhere else where it's just him talking and talking pretty much mostly about himself and his time running Apple. 
you know, versus answering all questions about Steve Jobs and and things like that. And he even got in a little bit into the into the Newton and how the the mm-hmm. uh, some miscommunication uh, about a statement he made about the Newton gave the press the idea he was expecting there'd be billions of them out there, and that wasn't uh, what he was trying to say. But of course, as we know, the press will jump on whatever it wants to, and then it gets repeated as truth. And you know, I didn't know about. Uh, I knew Alan Kay was an Apple fellow. I just didn't really put it together that. I guess he had worked so closely with John Scully and was a, a big part of the the Knowledge Navigator project, you know, with his Dynabook concepts and stuff. So I found that really interesting. And did you notice this year when uh, the Knowledge Navigator was being uh, uh, pulled out of the uh, mothballs to play it again, mm-hmm. that people were t- pointing out the date on the uh, Knowledge Navigator uh, computer? It was like oh yeah, it was like in 2011, uh, some date in 2011 when this was supposed to be taking place. Right. And with it, because of Siri, yes. Siri brought it all. That's right. Brought it all up, and you know, interestingly, there's been a lot of negative. Uh, this is something I was going to kind of bring up, um, which I didn't get a chance to in the interview. But you know, Newton got slammed about its handwriting recognition, and and actually, Apple did a good job of of making improving it dramatically by version two. Oh, definitely. I had a Newton that was okay to start with. I didn't have the first one. I had like the third generation, the one thirty. Uh, no, I had a mm-hmm. one ten, and then a one thirty. Uh, but it was much better by the time it got to there. It was very usable. And, you know, Siri is as well getting a lot of, uh, you know, it's getting beat up quite a bit you know, about the voice recognition. So there's there's some parallel there, which is I just think is kind of interesting. But there's a lot more Siri uh, users out there than there were Newton users, and it's going to, it's yeah. going to get better. It's not bad now, and it's going to get better still. So just to wrap this up from an Apple II perspective... Uh, I'd like to ask each of you what your takeaway is from this interview. I mean, it doesn't change what's happened, but what is the net outcome of this new information about Scully's role? Steve? Well, I felt uh, strongly enough after listening to it that I uh, I put up a blog post on my Apple II History site uh, uh, stating that John Scully was our friend, that uh, he was not the bad guy. He was actually... Uh, doing the right thing for the company at the time and doing the right thing for Apple II users. Without John Scully, I can't say we wouldn't have had a 2C or a 2GS, but uh, we may not have had somebody who was as good at paying attention to what was needed, and perhaps those products would not have appeared. Are you going to be revising any aspects of your history website? Well, I need to look through uh, the parts that deal with uh, the time when those computers were on their decline and uh, uh, find out if I've got anything that's placing uh, blame where it should not be placed. And Mike, what impact has this interview had on you? What has, how has it changed anything for you? It hasn't. Um, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I, it was very interesting, and, and I'm glad that David put it out there. I, by the time Scully kind of took over, I, I was sort of done with Apple at that point. I, I watched it from the trade press and things like that, but um, I didn't use a Macintosh um, until this century so hmm so you went to pcs mike yeah i did okay i, I re- originally remember seeing the the mac when it came out uh, and when it was announced and and i compared it to my 2e and other than the gui a- as it came out of the box the mac had less memory it was slower um it had a smaller screen i couldn't upgrade it i couldn't get in there I, there was no interest for me at all in the macintosh all right and david um well i i can't speak too much as far as um in regard to the, app, the Apple II, other than agree with Steve, it, it kind of gives me a broader perspective on, um, and what John Scully himself said is I, I don't think he was the 
the enemy of the Apple II. Um, you know, not sure if he was, uh, you know, the best friend of the Apple II, but he knew, hopefully he even recognized that, you know, their customers, which I would think he, he did, you know, that they deserve to be supported and, and you don't just kill off the platform. And, but also it, it carried the, the company for, for many years to, to work into the future. So it gives me a broader perspective there. I hope that the interview will, you know, create more discussion along these lines. One last sort of observation I made in, uh, so researching Apple II a little bit. So he left the company in, and gosh, I don't have this up, but I think it's September. So he was asked to step down as CEO. Michael Spindler came in and then he resigned four months later. So if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, he was, he was made the chairman, which was, um, more, you know, not really running the company. But according to Wikipedia, um, you know, Apple killed off the 2GS in December 92. So I guess Scully was still in charge, was still in charge then. But then the Apple IIe was still being sold. I assume the schools, but then it was stopped in November of 93. So while Michael Spindler was in charge. So does that necessarily mean anything? Don't know. <laughs> Just an observation. But I'm also, so in regard to John Scully in the interview, not Apple II related, I am looking to see more discussion and uh, people's reflection about the Knowledge Navigator now and then the Newton and all that and how, how history will hold them in regard in those areas. Is there any question of considering the source? I mean, given that the Apple II community has had a low opinion of Scully for decades now, is Scully himself the best person to tell us what really happened? Again, I don't know that he has anything to uh, uh, defend himself about at this point. It, it, what happened is what happened, and I don't think he's going to come back and say, oh, I was a bad person, the Apple II guys, I'm really sorry. I think he's just looking at it, uh, it's, it's a business decision. Uh, if those numbers on the these uh, graph that uh, David sent that link to are correct, by the time 1993 rolled around, they only sold about 30,000 Apple IIe's that year, or Apple II units that year. So at that rate, uh, that's that's it a, probably time. It's time to do something about it. I mean, you can't really continue to support it forever. It's uh, down from 100,000 the year before to 30,000 in '93. It's probably time to say goodbye. There, you know, there are plenty of really good books that have been written about the history of the, uh, Apple and Scully's role in that uh, from an outsider's perspective, or at least, you know, that weren't Scully's words. So having an interview uh, from Scully looking back on the way things were um, now with some perspective and time, I think is a very good thing. Great. Well, it was very timely to for you to conduct this interview, David, and we certainly appreciate having you on the show. Same with yes. you, Dr. Steve. Thank you. Um, this is the end of the Retroviews section, which coincidentally is also the end of the episode so on that note as i've said thank you very much for being on the show any parting shots keep up the good work <laughs> and to you sir i concur <laughs> <laughs> well we look forward to being on the retro computing roundtable david <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay all right I-, I wouldn't hold your breath about that ken <laughs> it'd be hard to get an edge, a word in edgewise with carrington there <laughs> that's true yeah. Well, you know, I, and, and I heard your special uh, end of the year show, and so uh, hopefully, hopefully we're going to make that Kansas Fest, you know, big old round table happen. Yeah. We'll be looking for you. Steve, you'll be there, right? I'm hoping to, yes. Excellent. Until then, retro compute. Yes. <laughs> this has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. You're going to have to cut that out, you know, because of copyright. <laughs> <laughs>